Welcome to the Gate 7 International Podcast, your official English source for all things Olympiakos FC and Greek football. You're listening to episode 35. My name is Peter Thompson. I'm here with my co-hosts Ari Purubasis and Lambros Sirmos, as well as our special guest today, making his third appearance, I believe. I'm already losing count. Our very good friend, one of our first ever guests, a contributor for LS Football, Stephen Koduru. Steve, it's great to have you back on. We're, we're happy to see you again. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having me. You know, um, much like um, our good former manager, Dakis Lemonis, I'm never too far away from coming back, I imagine. <laughs> yes, just like Dakis Lemonis. If, if there's like a hot seat of us not having a guest, the, the Stephen Koduru rumors just pop up. Yeah, and, uh, it's, it's I'll play exactly average, the average style of football, maybe <laughs> nearly win the league and then get sacked for no reason. But, you know, that's Fortunis a at the top, false nine. Always. The classic. Definitely. <laughs> and Cissé as well, strike partner as well, definitely. 4-4-2, four, four, Cissé and Fortunis yeah. up top, beautiful football. Yeah. Anyway, um, yes, as we've just said, we're very glad to have Steve back on. We're going to be going into the match against La Mia, a 6-0 victory for Olympiacos. And we will also have a broader discussion on Champions League. We're going to go into some metrics comparing last year's Champions League campaign to this year. And we're going to see what happened. Before we do that, I do want to just go over some quick news for the podcast. We will be releasing an episode on Wednesday, December 16th with pre-match coverage for the Olympiakos Ike Derby in the midweek. We hope to get this episode out as early as possible on Wednesday so people can listen to it before the game. We're going to be joined by another LS football contributor, Greg Gavalas, and we're going to discuss Ike's season with him. Obviously, their European campaign has just wrapped up, and we'll ask him about the Super League campaign for Ike so far as well. We will also have our episode coming out on Monday, December 21st, featuring another LS football contributor, Michael Vicini. This is the famed Rant Day episode where Michael and Nambro will be allowed to just voice all of their critiques all of the issues they have with anything. Alexis Kouyas being a horrible, corrupt lawyer may come up. Larissa being in danger of relegation may come up. Ruben Vinagre will come up. Just all sorts of wonderful things. We're very excited for that. And we will be posting on social media to allow the audience to contribute topics that they would like the host to rant about. So keep an eye out for that. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit at Gate7INTL. Our next podcast will be coming out on Thursday, December 24th, and we will be joined by another LS football contributor, Apostolos Garadonis. Apostolos is an expert on the youth talent of Greece, and we'll be discussing the direction that the Ethniki is going, looking at some of the talented Greek youngsters in the Super League as well as abroad. So we hope to learn some new names and people to keep an eye out for for Greece in the future. On Monday, December 28th, we will have our special Boozing with the Boys episode featuring our good friend George Haralampopoulos, who you can follow on Twitter at Life of George C. This is a special holiday-themed episode. We're going to be allowing listeners to come on and join. We will be recording the episode at approximately 5 p.m. American Eastern Time on Sunday, December 27th, and we will post the Zoom link on our Twitter page, again, Gate7INTL. People can come in, join, ask a question, say hi, chat, whatever you like. We will also have the instructional episode about analytics coming up. That'll be Adi and I 
As I said on the last episode, that was meant to happen last week, but after the Olympiacos Porto game, we were both too sad to do it. <laughs> so it will be coming up sometime soon after that. Hopefully next week, we will see. Additionally, one last message. Uh, we would like to say thank you to our sponsor, Piraeus International Incorporated. Piraeus International has been importing and exporting cargo for companies and individuals for over 40 years. They can assist you in importing olive oil, marble, or any other goodies from Greece. They can also assist in exporting, whether you have one box or a full household of items that need to be sent over. Check them out at PiraeusINTL.com or give them a call at 410-675-4696. I think Lambro has something he wants to say about another game that took place today. We're recording this on Sunday, December 13th, and this would be a big derby up in the north of Greece between Pauk and Adis with the second place spot in Super League potentially on the line. Adis win 1-0. Lambro obviously was rooting very hard for Pauk in this game. We know Lambro loves <laughs> Pauk, basically his second club in Greece. Lambro, what do you want to say about this one before we jump into Olympiakos content? Hello from Lockdown Athens. Hope everyone is well. Uh, so yeah, there's not much to do here in the evening, so I decided to open up a beer and sit down and watch this game. And you know, it was decent from the start. It was definitely like a hot derby. There were tackles flying in, blah, blah, blah. And the Addicts played pretty well. They have a decent team, decent roster. We talked about that before we played them. And it was just a crazy game. Addicts got a penalty, which was close, but I think Pascalakis found his foot and the player got the ball, but like the Pauk TV or whatever the Pauk side are saying, he didn't get it. And Pauk won a non-existent penalty for Tzolius and just craziness. Pauk kind of played terrible in my opinion as well. They should have lost by more and with fans in the stadium probably lose. Well, the fun part is the craziness after the game, just craziness. So as most Greek listeners know, Greek TV sucks. It, it is known, like, you turn on your TV and you just have, like, Turkish soap operas, news, blah, 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 blah. It's nothing. But at 11 p.m. on Sundays, you get total football on open TV, the channel of Stavidis, and it was, like, comic hour. So they come on right away, and they go through every chance, and they're just, like, so biased, and they're just like, this is a disgrace. And then they come out with a statement. I guess Savithis released a statement through the team and they're like, this is a disgrace. And Mark Kladenberg is going to be sitting on the bench of Nottingham Forest. Like it made no sense, the statement. And they were so upset with VAR and just like the league is corrupt. We want a meeting. And it was so entertaining. And then they had their resident referee. What's his name? Tasos Kakos, the bald guy. He came on and he was given the good stories, as they say, about how it was a phantom penalty and Pauk should have had a penalty. He did mention, however, how Douglas Aguso should have gotten sent off like five times in that game, which was fair enough for him. But anyway, just a crazy game and like this drama that's blown up afterwards is crazy. I don't know if any of you guys watched it, but here there wasn't much to do. So I threw it on and it was craziness. I enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed my evening. Well, that's what it's all about. Entertainment, right? No, I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I enjoyed the game as well, too. I, I There was, like, some tough fouls. It was derby-esque, like, fights. I, I Honestly, it was, a, it was a top match. I enjoyed the game, and, and especially in the first half when Aris, Aris was taking it to them and they were pressing them and wanted the ball. They're playing good stuff, and 
maybe this is controversial, but Bruno Gama, we're looking for a winger this this January. I don't know if he's available. They talked about it on uh, TV, like he's having the best season of his life so far. And so I'd be open to having him as well. I know he's been linked before. Well, I mean, to be fair to him, he, I believe last season, he was one of the best. He was, yeah, he was one of the best players outside of a bit of like the top four, top five Greek teams. He'd like, yeah, I don't see why not. He could fit into the Olympiagos team if he, continues the form he's on why not if we need somebody in that position yeah for sure and they have this defender from Nottingham Forest too like Bella Belhonia I don't know how like the Greek announcers were saying it's super weird but I think that's how they say it in in England they're just a solid team like they have a nice pitch as well which we're gonna get into about La Mia they seem like a solid team like I don't know maybe they finish higher than Pauk that's not saying much with that team over there pretty terrible but we'll see well one position we do certainly need a player for is left back, as we've talked about. And there is a bit of transfer news starting to trickle in. A few names, a few familiar ones, a few new ones. We've talked about Bjorkan, the Norwegian player who might be coming in. But the name Matthias Rice is still sort of around. Uh, the Rio Ave left back. And then our player, Miguel Trauco, Peruvian international, who we have an episode all about. If you scroll all the way back to episode two. We only want him in, you know, just because we have an episode about him. I think Mateus Rice is probably a better option, but seems like some of those rumors are starting to pop up in terms of January. Let's just hope we can get something done soon. We also have a deep dive on Mateus Rice when it seemed like he was pretty much a done deal. That one I want to say is episode 15. I believe uh, that's when we did a deep dive on him and why we thought maybe in the end he was going to be the better choice than Drago. So if you're curious or just want to get to know a little bit more about those players, you can definitely check those out. Uh, another fun bit of news. Uh, I know everyone read this on multiple different papers from multiple different reporters. Uh, Mighty Nike went to the locker room in Piria before training, or actually, sorry, it was after training with uh, Martins, and he pretty much scolded the players. Uh, was very disappointed in the efforts for Champions League this year after how well we did last season, how well we looked against opposition that was just in an, a completely different universe than we were. The team just had more passion last year and looked like it. And this year, especially after the Marseille game, we just didn't quite look as good or uh, or as inspiring. And he made it clear to the players that that's not going to be tolerated. doesn't matter who you are. If you want to wear this jersey, the Olympiacos jersey, you've got to fight for it. You've got to love it, and you've got to have passion. And that's the message he gave the players this week. Well, it's a good message because it's not good enough, as we talked about on our last podcast. And we will get into it more with Steven and hear his thoughts. But let's first go through a more positive note with the La Mia game. A 6-0 victory, as I mentioned at the beginning. Goals from six different players. I will do my best to recite this in order. It was Buhavakis, then Mvila, then El Arabi, and then I think it was Sudani with a penalty, and then Kuipers and Masuras. So some new names in there. We got some run from Thanasis Andruzos. Tiago Silva started and played about 75 minutes. So it's nice to see a lot of those players. Steven, from this game, what's the thing that jumps out at you the most? What's your immediate quick reaction to the Lamia result? Firstly, that it's the biggest result of the domestic season so far for, from any uh, any game. And secondly, I think it was just nice to see like new players come on and actually 
play. It was great, you know. And Rutsos got like 45 minutes or so. Kaipus came on and, you know, you thought, you know, he looks like he could be a sort. He's quite a big kid as well. Like, he's really tall. And then nice it was excellent to see them, you know, it was excellent to see them get, like, bring so much impact into the game. You know, Kaipus got his first goal, which was excellent to see. We need that from from those kind of rotation players. And Andruzzos, great assist from him for Masuras at the end, you know. Sudani as well to get a goal. I know it's a penalty, but it was a well-taken penalty. It's his first goal for a very long time and he looked very happy with it as well. He, and and I think in the game he played, in general, he played quite well. He was doing all the right things. Um, I think from, because Lamia is such a poor team this season. They're dreadful. I, remember, I was saying to you guys before, you know, they, they were a bit of a bogey team for us for about a season and a half after they knocked us out of the Greek Cup two seasons ago. And they just, they're dreadful. So it's hard, it's, it can be hard to gauge where Olympiagos are at in comparison to this to this team but it's a good performance you know it was a it was a great performance the game was done by half time and and I, I think what I can take from this game most of all is that the players that haven't played much came on and showed that they wanted to fight for a place in the team yep I absolutely love that I love to see Andruzos and Kuipers get on the pitch and get a nice run out 6-0 as you said is the best result that we've had all season uh the only thing that comes close is the 4-0 over Atromitos, but I think all four, three or four of those goals were scored uh, a man up. Today, we did have Lamia get a man sent off in the second half, but we were up 3-0 at halftime. As you said, the game was dead. It was done. Uh, we had already put it to bed. So it's just really nice to see this. One thing that I'm just going to get out of the way and complain about is the pitch. My God, like, obviously, not all these clubs have as much money as Olympiacos, but, like, it was just a puddle. It was one big puddle. It's dangerous, and it also makes it so much harder. Like, you can't play a ball on the ground because it just, like, stops. You try to, like, just pass the ball to, like, the other defender, and the ball just, like, stops rolling. Like, it was madness. It's just you shouldn't have to be playing Greek Super League matches in those conditions. Having watched games in the FA Cup where, you know, like a big Premier League side, like, I don't know, Liverpool. I remember when Liverpool went down to AFC Wimbledon, for example, a few seasons ago, and the pitch was like that, and... It was like people. They were, it was like a slip and slide at times, you know. In the second half, like players were trying to grab the ball from one another, and they were just skid. They weren't even running at points. It was just absolutely ridiculous. And like you said, you know, there isn't the money behind Lamia like there is Olympiacos. They can't prepare the pitch in in the way that some of the bigger clubs can. But it was, it was basically a pond in certain areas. I remember in the in the first half, like. The left-hand corner, like practically at the left-hand corner for Lamia in their defensive half, was basically all water at that point. And I remember, I remember Angelovic especially. He was half soaked. It was, it was brilliant. It was, it was brilliant, but really unsafe at the same time. With the pitch being as wet as it was, one of my favorite tweets of the day was from our good buddy Bob Beans, when he said that because the pitch was so awful, it was basically a swamp out there. It, it's the only time of the year we can really excuse a poor performance from Lazar Radeevich because when he would try to dribble it forward, the ball would get caught or maybe it would slide too much when he would try to settle it. You know, it, it was really poor, really the only time we can give him some leeway for a poor performance. And now, Steve, you brought up a really good point about looking for some things within the game that might indicate whether or not Olympiacos is kind of on the right path because beating Lamia isn't special. Yeah, they're, they're tough for us to fight, but also every, every game we play, the pitch is just awful. I, I mean, in the last two years, I can't remember a time we've played there and that 
that pitch wasn't at least some kind of swamp or at least one of the most terrible looking fields I've ever seen in my life. But there were some encouraging things for me in this game. First and foremost, Jan and Vila didn't sit back with the defensive line for almost 90 minutes or whenever he ended up getting subbed off. He actually was sitting far forward, and in the positional mapping, it was the same. He was right next to Bukalakis almost the whole time. Staying forward presented us an extra option in the midfield, and that brings me to the second thing, which was the movement in the midfield. It is no coincidence that we look so much better in possession when there are pieces moving around in the midfield. Thiago Silva moving. Jan Vila moving, getting open in some in those holes. Bukalakis. Now all of a sudden we can play with the ball in the middle. We can actually get things. We can open them up. When everyone's staying flat, you have one midfielder with the defensive line, one in the middle, and one standing all the way forward with the forwards. You don't get a lot of options, and it's really hard to get stuff moving. Crosses. Today was the first time we've had at least 20 crosses in a game since the last game where we really looked pretty decent. The Offy game, also the game where Matthew Valbuena sustained his in, or ended up sustaining his injury. That was the last game where we had 20 crosses. Look how the game opens up when you just have a little bit of movement. You don't have a midfielder pretending to be a third center back, and you establish width. All of these pieces can come together. I hope this is something we bring forward when we play Ike this week. What I did notice about when Mvia moved out of position into a more defensive line with Cisse and Semedo was, and I don't know if this is what they were trying to do, was that one of the fullbacks would always go higher up the pitch. It was almost like I've seen, I've seen, I think it was Maurizio Pochettino with Spurs. When, when he was playing Eric Dyer and like holding mid before, you know, Mourinho decided that he's actually a centre-back because that's actually where he should be played. Different conversation altogether. But um, that, that would be part of like, maybe a full one of his fullbacks going up the pitch in a more advanced position uh, just in case the break happens quickly and they still have three or four players on on the defensive count on the defense so maybe that's what martins was doing and like you said it wasn't the entire game and and i mean at the end of the day he, he scored a thunderbolt as well it was a yep. brilliant brilliant goal that we had scored and he, he he had one that was threatening earlier in the game before that and mm-hmm. then he did actually put it on target and it was yeah, a brilliant effort from him as well and it was funny, Sudani described it uh, really funny in a post-game interview. He was like, Jan doesn't score that in training. Jan doesn't score those in games. Jan doesn't even score that on PlayStation. And was just <laughs> like laughing with the translator and like the people in the studio. It was hilarious. But yeah, I, I've seen the same thing too, where almost Rafinha goes into the midfield and Envia plays almost in that back line. Like Rafinha yeah. moves more inside and envy i don't know it's a bit strange it's kind of like almost guardiola-esque with the fullbacks moving almost into a midfield situation i noticed that a bit today Holebas doesn't seem to do it as much as rafinha who i think is more comfortable doing it but envia had a better game i don't know if he was being urged to go forward but under the circumstances like with the field in the condition that it was also we we talked about marinaki slamming the team marinaki's actually put out a statement today after the game talking about the field and saying like how proud he was of the players going there and fighting and working so hard when essentially they were risking their health. Like it was really dangerous out there. And I don't know if I want to make an excuse for Lamia, but it's been raining for like four days straight, just nonstop. And it's not yeah. great for them, but again, yeah, it, it was dangerous. And it was nice to see Mayanakis also realizing like these guys are putting their body, risking it out for a game. No one's probably ever going to watch a mid, like a, 
game against the worst team in Greece, you know, so good enough on him. I think, I think also some people, including myself at first, questioned why Pedro Martins put out such a strong 11 as well. And then, and then once the game started and we started dominating, I just thought, you know what, this is probably what they need. You know, they need to absolutely slap a team about after such an, like a poor result midweek, which we'll get to later. And then, you know, if, if, if it goes the right way, um, and, and when it did, we were 3-0 up by halftime, obviously, and then he can make those substitutions and bring all the key players off for Ike in the week. And so that was just good game management from Martins. You know, it boosts, it boosts the morale. And then also that, like I said before, those rotation players get to come in and get a good amount of game time as well. So, yeah, I thought it was a well-managed game from him. Definitely. And I, I kind of wanted to also give some praise again to Bukalakis. Bukalakis attempted almost 90 passes today. He uh, had the most attempted smart passes on the team, uh, most attempted through balls. I mean, he did a lot of work uh, in that midfield holding role. He was more active in possession than Jan and Vila was. Uh, this game reminded me more of that first game against Marseille when we played, and both him and Jan and Vila were doing a lot of work in the midfield together, cleaning stuff up, kind of dominating possession, really slowing the game down, calming things down, moving possession out everywhere, taking some chances downfield. It was nice to see that. Because we we started to see that that partnership from them early on in the season, and we thought it could be something pretty decent or at least something pretty special. And today was was good to see. I thought that the partnership was in full swing. Great performances from both of them. Bukalakis in particular, I thought did well. Tiago Silva, I thought had a a, a decent showing. I was expecting more out of him, uh, based on some of the the bits and parts we've seen so far. Um, but I would like to see more of him going forward. Yeah, the Bukalakis and Vila story has been so interesting all year, you know, such an interesting storyline. And as you sort of hinted at, Steve, it's it's great to see the team actually poop on someone and beat them 6-0, and it's really good for the team's confidence and especially for Bukalakis to get a goal on a pretty well-placed header, to be fair, and uh, and play the whole 90 and do a really good job, at least I thought, so... Hopefully he's feeling himself going into Ike and we play well against them. One more thing I do want to bring up that I just, I thought was weird was after Buhalakis' goal, did you guys see Semedo just like pass out on yeah. the pitch? Like that was scary. I don't know about you. Like he looked totally, it was like a delayed reaction. He got, I guess, elbowed or something in the, the head the punch out. going up for the first mm -hmm. header. And he looked fine. Buhalaki scored the goal and he started walking back and he just falls over. And, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, this could be really bad. And then they changed the camera and he's getting ready to come back on again. I mean, I really thought that was going to be the day for him. And I thought maybe that's the, the right idea to just like be a little bit cautious and give him the day off. Like he's clearly concussed or something, right? Honestly, yes. And this was such a perfect game for Avram, if we're being honest, like super slow, <laughs> <Yes>. waterlogged <laughs> pitch, nice and physical, <laughs> like some two-fitted challenges against like second division caliber players like that is so his level like he was already relishing it when we went up I noticed he was loving himself on that waterlogged pitch you know like that's why he came back to Greece for sure but yeah no that was such a scary moment and the, the game has to change and get moments like that out like he shouldn't he shouldn't have been allowed back onto the field whatsoever like no matter what he felt or what the doctor said you collapse on the field for me and you you should not be allowed to come back on uh, if it, honestly, if it were me, I wouldn't have cared what Semedo was saying when after it happened. 
I would have just pulled him off just from the get-go. Even at one nothing, that game was already in hand. And while we're while we're talking just on Semedo and Cisse, obviously the defense, there wasn't really much to test them in that regard. But Semedo did have two really bad challenges, in my opinion, that just were very reminiscent of some of the challenges he's had in Champions League and just things that we've complained about. The one where he just kind of got burned and I forgot who the the striker was that just went or the winger was that just went around him on the left side early on in the game. And then another challenge further up the field when he was pressing and it was just the same thing. I was really hoping we'd see at least some kind of improvement on that or maybe he'd be a little bit calmer, but he did the same thing again. If I could nitpick again from for both Cisse and Semedo, there was one or two moments where they just did that weird little chip that they tried to send back to Jose Sarr, and then that was like <laughs> their one like real opportunity, and they nearly scored. And I just thought, oh for goodness sake! Like I know I can't remember how far up we were up by then, but still, like they're still doing it, and it's against La Mia. Like, oh dear me! And it what it wasn't a major thing, but. They still need to get that out of their game because they if you're gonna pass it back to Joseph Sarr, just pass it straight to him. Don't yep. don't do these cheeky little chips. Don't try and like show off like and kind of showboat. Just just get on with it, honestly. Especially Cisse, who like doesn't have at least the technical ability that Semedo does. Like if Semedo does that, I'm like, okay, nine times out of ten, that's coming off pretty easily. But like Cisse, yeah. like, you know, and today was another day where like he had some really like long passes that just didn't make any sense or, or just at least the execution was off. You, you flip a coin and you'll have a CSA that can just pick a fly out from like 50 meters away and get the ball to it. Or you flip the coin and it can't hit the bright side of the barn. I, it's really weird. CSA, I have all sorts of mixed emotions for him just in general this season. I didn't want to do it, but with those long passes, Manuel da Costa references are oh coming too light those passes by him were so bad it just like the long passes it's just like give me a break the the passing back to the goalkeeper is actually interesting i have a theory on this they didn't they did this thing where they kind of like lifted the ball up because i think they didn't want to play it on the ground because they thought like, <laughs> it's just gonna hit it's gonna hit like a swamp of water and then the striker's just gonna be like oh that's lovely and just pick it up from it's just this gonna stop. <laughs> no because <laughs> i noticed that a few times at the beginning of the game like the players were playing like especially jan and via just like would like give the ball a touch and then it would like stop under his legs and he would trip over the ball and it was just such a calamity so i'm kind of forgiving of them but the da costa reference is there everyone it may be lifted at another point but yeah, no, I definitely, I see that. It definitely sometimes. will be lifted at another point, knowing Nabro. But I think Semedo just needs some time off, honestly. You know, we've talked about whether he needs to serve a punishment for some of his off-the-field actions, and obviously he's going to get a day off in our next Europa League game because he got sent off in uh, the Champions League game against Porto, but we know what the deal is with him. I'd, I'd be happy to see Cissé and Ba. I feel like we haven't seen a full 90 minutes of Cissé and Ba for a while. Maybe not against Ike, but certainly against Marisa might be a good opportunity to, yeah, to do that. People have to remember we're not close. We're, we are very close to the Christmas break. Like We have this big game against Ike, and then we have a game against home at, at, at home against one of the worst teams in the league in Larissa. So just give everything for this game against Ike, who have terrible defense, maybe worse than La Mia. We'll see. La Mia, who had actually former Ike player 
Sanatopoulos was his name? Adam, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, we'll see how how we can do against Ike and then against Larissa. Just two games, just finish strong. And we can go, I think, seven to ten points above Pauk looking at the table. I have to really look, but that's huge for the winter. You know, that would be a really big thing to to go into the break with. Yeah, so for our table update right now, we're on 28 points. We're currently four points ahead of Pauk with a game in hand. So good spot, good spot. We have that Ike game that we're going to make up. So definitely uh, looks pretty good. I wonder, are there any final thoughts before we go into man of the match and giving Pedro Martins a coach's grade? Anything else that we uh, want to add? Just just a couple of quick things. Firstly, it was great seeing such a poor pitch in 1080p. It was great. <laughs> you could really see the Shout out Nova rising. Sports World. We yeah. love it. Yeah, it's actually, well, it's, an, it's certainly an interesting platform. And then also, I, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was like this truck in the first half, which was behind the Lamia goal. Yep. And you could see <laughs> yeah, this we were guy just sitting that. in the, yeah. There was just this guy watching the game. And I was like, wow, that's like, that's first class seats right there. Like you're getting the whole right <laughs> angle there, man. Like, yeah, Lambro, that, you should have moved to La Mia instead. You could have just watched all the games, just like stood next to that truck. Honestly, I got to ask that guy, which message did he text? One, two, three, four, five, six. Like, what is the one for sitting on truck watching football game? Like, is that six <laughs> going for walk? I don't know. I'm going to, or is it four helping a friend by cheering on the team? I don't know. You know, I, <laughs> I have to check with the Greek government because if I can find my truck, you know, I can try and match La Mia guy as well. But so some final thoughts on the game. I have two big thoughts. Hugo Kuyper's great goal and his comments after the game in Greek. In so Greek. impressive. Okay. I mentioned this. I mentioned this at another point. Like he did a pregame interview with Nova and he spoke in Greek. Impressive stuff. And two, Andrutsos, even from right back, showing his class. What a beautiful cross. Yep. Both of those guys need to be playing more. Hopefully we see more of them. That's what we- I got out of that second half. Can we do a loser of the match first? Sure. Seba. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Radevich, no, the I, Serbian. You oh, God. Yeah, me. He's so he, bad. You He's realize terrible. in 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 94 minutes of play, this man didn't even attempt 20 passes. How are you on the field? I don't care what, but even El Arabi touches the ball more than that. <laughs> Sometimes I just wonder, you know, uh, he did end up with an assist. He had a, a key pass after that as well. But my God, I, I, it really makes me wonder. The penalty. The freaking the, penalty he gave away. Yeah. He just like stuck it. What <laughs> was, was that? He like just like hit the ball to get going. It was like, what are you doing? He like yeah. looked around like, what, what? And, and he still <laughs> registered. He registered nine losses, according to Scout. Like, dribbling and i know some of that it's like okay the pitch is bad so maybe it's difficult for him to dribble he had that one really poor pass on the the further the the right side of the field where he was on but i just you just he can't ever seem to do much correct and even when he does he does more negative things than than positive i had such high hopes for Brandelovich at the beginning of the season because he always he well not always he did this last season like he had such a great start to the season he he scored the winning goal against Ike to win the double his performances looked okay to begin with and you thought you know he could build on them and unlike last season where we had Podence who took his yeah. spot and Valbuena on the other side so there was no way of him getting in and even when Podence left Mazuras took that spot any instead and Sudani as well 
he's just been given free reign on the right. And it's just, it's, I, I find it more sad than anything else because this, this kid looked like he had talent and it's just, I don't think he's as bad as Seba. Like, I, I, I think that's quite, it'd be quite <laughs> an achievement to be worse than Seba. Well, I mean, we've had, I think we've had worse wingers than even Seba. Nachwell, uh, everybody remember well, from two years Not ago. Well, oh my remember, God. Do you remember, Carcel, do you remember Carcella? Carcella, yeah. he came on loan he, and he barely played and he was like, nah, I'm off. And he, he left. Was that <laughs> really oh, yeah, he was terrible. He, in yeah. he was dreadful. But yeah, I feel sorry for him because he, he looked like he was trying in a, in a fairly waterlogged yeah. pitch and it's a fair play to him. He got an assist. We'll see. No, for sure. And I don't know. I feel like you can't blame him so much, like you, like you said. But it was just like I, I was happy to see stuff from certain players, and then like Ronjelovic was just mediocre, like usual. And I was just like, God, man! Like everyone else having a brilliant game. Even Pepe seemed decent, you know. Oh, I saw some. Oh, God, I, I remember this now that I bring up Pepe. I saw a hilarious comment. I, I mentioned on the last podcast how I've heard a lot of people calling him a coat, which is what people in Greece say. And, like, I saw a comment, some guy say, you know, this Pepe, he's a quality quote. Like, <laughs> I was like, what? Like, he's like, he's not, like, total coat, but he's a quality coat. I'm like, what Does are these new phrases? Player? <laughs> yeah, like, a coat is just a terrible player. People in Greek say it all the time, like, he's a coat. But this guy said he's a quality coat, and I'm just like, what am I reading? Like, is my Greek terrible? Like, is this <laughs> a real quote? Like, anyway, just an interesting one. I have Pepe is a quality coat, according to <laughs> random Greek people. Well, yeah, pretty much everyone, I think, had a good game besides Lazar, to be honest with you, at least as far as I saw. So it's it's really hard for me to give out a man of the match award, especially because we scored six goals and, you know, nobody scored more than one. So, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a clear hat trick or anything like that, but for me, I'm going to say Buhalakis just because he played the whole game. He played the whole 90 minutes. He did get on the score sheet with the first goal. And uh, as Adi mentioned, he was super, super active in the midfield. You know, he's a good player for these Super League games when we're when we're looking to create out of the midfield. He does a lot for us. So for me, that's my man of the match. And my coach is great. I'll say A-. minus. I can't really be that much of a complainer. If anything, just I would want more rest. Uh, you know, you could have probably given Avram Popodopoulos the start. Could have probably given Pepe the start, but it really isn't a big deal. Glad Rusai got a day off. I'm glad Rusai is at the level where we need to protect him and rest him on the dangerous pitch. And Lazar, you can go out and run around there anyway. Like that's at least that's what I'm taking this to be. Martins values Rusai too much to use him on these uh, these swamps. Throw Lazar out there instead. So I like that as well. Hopefully we see Rusai against Dyke and he puts on a masterclass performance. Pedro Martins is probably using his full-strength team for this important game and he's going to use a rotation side against a mid-table team like Ike on Wednesday, who suck. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that with Greg, but Ike are terrible. and we'll Hopefully we beat them three or four nails well. So men of the match, I actually agree with Peter Buhalakis. I was pleasantly surprised this afternoon watching him play football. I, I enjoyed his stuff. He had a few touches where he like put it, put the ball around the corner and I really enjoyed it. Tiago Silva also played really well. I enjoyed what I saw from him. Um, coach Greg, yeah, A, when you win 6-0, I feel like that's that's all you can say. Steven, what do you got? Well, I think I'm going to be nice and give it to Rangelovic. You know, he got soaking wet. You know, he, he got outplayed. You know, he gave away the penalty and gave an assist. So, yeah, I, I, no, no. 
I'm gonna <laughs> I, I'm I'm gonna be different. And um, in, in all seriousness, I think I'm gonna give it to Mazuras, you know, because he got got an assist. Goal assist. He worked hard. Goals well at the very end, and he worked hard. Bukalagi's for me was pretty damn close, though. I, I'd say he he was close for me, but I think I'll be different and give it to um good old Mazuras. I think that would be Lazar's first man of the match. Like if we were to tally up all of our man of the match awards in the podcast, I think that would be the first one for Lazar. Man of the match for La Mia because he created the best opportunity for them to score. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, that true? My God, that penalty was terrible. And I think that's why he was extra incensed. When who do we say it was Samantaras or Salamantaras? I forgot what is. Yeah, it was like. Let me just double check. I think. Um, God, he was terrible. That, yeah. <laughs> that guy that was terrible. Literally elbowed was... the ball out. Yeah, that was so bad. I don't know how they saw that. Didn't see that on the first thing. Like he literally just elbowed it away. My God, there's some terrible players in Greece sometimes, and you're just like, yeah. how are these well, people first I think... division? I also think it was more the case of the ref refereeing the score and not the game because it wasn't until the entire team was making a stink of it. And then, of course, the benches were all screaming about it. There was so much kerfuffle and it was starting to take away from the game. And he, you know, they were forced to kind of just take a look at it. Uh, it was like peer pressure in that respect. But, Stephen, I'm glad you brought up Masuras because I also thought he had a really good game. And even before the goal, uh, before he scored his goal, he had four total shot assists. Uh, the one assist, the actual assist he had, plus he had three other key passes. Uh, incredible game, one smart pass from him as well. Uh, I'm always hesitant now to like give him compliments because when we say like, "Oh yeah, he had a great game," Yanakopoulos stinker 2.0, coming then that just stinker. means there's a stinker coming, and then we're just like, "What what were we saying?" But yeah, I'm going to give it to Bukhalakis again. I show I always show bias to midfielders, especially the deep-lying ones, because I think they're underappreciated uh, with Masuras getting a runner-up. And then I'll give Martins, you know, 6 nothing. I don't see how he doesn't get an A. So A for Martins. Well, it's time to get into the, the less fun part, folks. We had a grand old time talking about a 6-0 victory in, in Lamia with the dump trucks and uh, the wet pitches. You know, that's my favorite type of game to talk about, but... Now let's get into the real stuff, the stuff that, you know, really matters, the, the European football. And uh, we've obviously finished our Champions League group stage. For those who aren't aware, Olympiacos finished third in their group behind Manchester City and Porto and ahead of Marseille. That means that they will progress to Europa League. This is the same outcome as last year, although I, in my opinion, and I think the analytics in general support this, last year's performance was a lot more encouraging. We were in a group with the best team in Europe, Bayern Munich. They didn't lose a single game in the entire Champions League campaign. They only lost to two teams by one goal. One of them was us. The other one was PSG in the Champions League final. We drew with Tottenham. We didn't get a result against a team as big as Spurs in this year's Champions League campaign. We also, for what it's worth, were up 2-0 on Tottenham. We were playing with them, and then that disastrous collapse happened, and we lost 4-2. But we... Got more points last season, and this year, for me, the results just looked a lot worse. Even when we did dominate in possession, we couldn't actually score goals. I think we scored two goals in the whole campaign this year. El Arabi was nowhere to be seen. We're missing a lot of our star players from the 2019 campaign. That, of course, includes Guillerme, Costas Chimicas, Omar El Abdelawi, Potence, 
And then obviously we also had Sudani, although he wasn't in the European list for the group stage. And then we also did have Kafu, of course, last year for the second half of the season. This year, they all left. They were replaced with a flurry of players, a lot of them coming in very late. Jan Mvila and Rafinha are probably the two biggest impact players, as well as, of course, the return of a healthy Costas Fortunis to the team. We've also seen Holebas come in. We had Pepe, who's made some appearances in Champions League. We also have Bruma and Ruben Vinagre, who have been in there a little bit. We've had the arrival of Rusai, as well as, you know, Andruzos and all of those players. So the team has looked pretty different, but I'm interested in getting into the analytics. And then, Stephen, I want to see what you think just in, in terms of juxtaposing the two campaigns. What do you think went wrong this year? What do you think the key issues are? And how do you think we can fix them? Yeah, there's a, a lot of stark differences between... Uh, I'm not going to say the team, but I mean, in more so in the performances. And then we can get into, of course, once we see the data, why that is. So first, we're going to start off with goals. Obviously, in the group stage this year for Champions League, we scored two goals in the entire group stage. Not a good look. Last year, we scored eight goals in the group stage. So rounding out all of the games that we played, including qualifiers for this year, we averaged half a goal a game. Uh, while teams were scoring about one and a quarter goals against us per game. Last year, we were scoring almost two goals a game. It was actually one and three quarters, and teams were still scoring the same rate against us, 1.25. In terms of shots, this year, this Champions League campaign, in the group stage, we had 45 shots, total shots on goal. We were averaging just under 11 shots per game, while our opponents were averaging just over 11 shots per game on us. Last year, we were averaging almost 13 and a half shots per game. Opponents against us were averaging 12 and a quarter. Last year, also big difference. In the group stage, we had 74 shots, not on target, just general shots, 74 total shots in the group stage, 30 more than we had this year giving you an idea about how much more effective we were at least getting shots off our possessions, getting looks on goal. Uh, in terms of total pass per game, we're getting more into possession statistics here. Um, the team this year was averaging in Champions League almost 500 passes per game, 495.38, with total team pass accuracy of 85.7%. Obviously, those percentages were weighed down by the one Manchester City game, and then, of course, the, the last game we played against Marseille. Teams are possessing, on average, four, with 460 passes against us per game. Team pass accuracy against us of 85.6%. Comparing this to last year, last year the team was only averaging about 400, just over 400 passes per game. With teams averaging roughly the same amount of passes against us with a similar pass accuracy. 448-17 against us, 84.8% pass accuracy for our opponents, while we had 83.7 pass accuracy for us. So, all in all, we're on the ball more. We've seen that. We were dominating possession more this year than last year, and our pass accuracy overall was up. Positional attacks. This year, we were averaging 25 and three-quarter positional attacks per game with a 19% positional attack efficiency. We've mentioned in the past that's not amazing, but it's okay. Poor positional attacks and poor positional attack efficiencies are in the 14 to 15%. Uh, that's when you're really not figuring out how to break down defenses. So 19% is 
not the best, but it's not awful. Last year, we were averaging almost 32 positional attacks per game. So five more, we were getting five more attacks in possession per game, despite possessing overall less. I know it seems kind of counterintuitive, but it just explains the efficacy of us when we were on the ball. And our positional attack efficiency was 26.7%. We got shots on target from our positional attacks way more often last year than we did this year. We were much more effective breaking down defensive lines, through balls, making runs in and out. And this was against Tottenham and Bayern Munich, guys. So this is data against them. So this year, the competition wasn't quite at that level, except for Manchester City, of course. But even against competition that was at that level, we could do it much more effectively last year. Counterattacks. This year, we were averaging less than two counters a game, 38.5% efficiency off the counter. Again, those efficiency measures are for shots. That's how often we got a shot off the counter. Last year, we were averaging almost four per game. Much better off the counter similar efficiency, but getting those opportunities off the counters, counters can be really dangerous, especially if you have numbers up. The reason we didn't register as many counters this year, one, we couldn't get out of our half of the field. An attack doesn't register for Y scout unless you get out of your half of the field. You have to actually possess and get into the opposing third of the field from that possession for it to register as a positional attack. We were not so good at that this year, especially against the likes of Manchester City. And it showed crosses. We've talked about crossing on a whole, how our crossing this year started off pretty decent, but then kind of the last few weeks, ever since Mal Valbuena got hurt, it dropped. Our Champions League season average for crosses was just under 16. Last year, we were at 14.6 per game. The efficiency rate was about the same, or roughly around 40%. This year, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody that we were offsides more, almost just over twice as much this year as last year. Almost four offsides per game, whereas last year we never even had two per game. So that's probably going to surprise no one. Smart passes. Smart passes, this is something we've talked about before, and Peter and I are going to talk about this again in much more detail in the instructional episode. Uh, smart passes is a metric we like because it really measures how often or how effective we are at cutting through balls and really making runs and trying to break down defenses. This year, we were averaging five and a half smart passes per game with an efficiency of 31.8%. So about three through balls were get, cutting through those defenses and making major opportunities per game. Last year, we were attempting almost eight of them per game, and our efficiency was over 40% much better than now. We were getting about four, roughly about four smart passes that were cutting through and breaking down defensive lines. A little bit better last year than this year, something we've known. Something that's worth noticing for us. Last year, teams were cutting our defense up much more than they were this year. Our defensive metrics for this season are actually better than last season. We were cutting down through balls. We were cutting down counterattacks, like I mentioned before. And we were a little bit more compact. So although offensively, we definitely were not quite as effective breaking into the offensive third, defensively, almost everything was better. And this is stuff that we've talked about kind of just on a on a person-to-person -person level with, with regards to statistics. Omar, we know that last year that Omar was well, well beyond his we'll say the, the best of his career, the peak of his career. He's on the downward slope, and it showed last year. Simikas, of course, was stellar, 
But Holebas has surprised all of us in regards to his defensive ability. His defensive ability has been pretty good. What we're missing out on is the offensive ability that Simikas offered. And that'll come later. We're going to discuss some of those side-by-side statistics later. But for now, this is more of the general tone. And the last statistic we wanted to mention was match tempo. Match tempo is a statistic that discusses how many passes we get per minute of possession. So when we possess the ball for an entire minute, regardless of what the other team's doing, how many passes do we have? Our match tempo, despite us seeming like we were looking a little bit slower on the ball, our match tempo was higher this year than it was last year. We had more passes when we are in position than we did last year. Now, some of you might think, okay, this doesn't make any sense because we look slower, but there is a reason for this. We have a little bit more interplay in terms of our short passes and more back passes this year. We pass the ball a lot more to the goalkeeper. And when you look at the data, that's the direct correlation. We have more back passes. We restart more this year. And because we restart more, there's less opportunities in those possessions where the opponent is coming, pressing, and trying to steal the ball. That's something we did more this year with the back passes that frustrated us, but then also resulted in the elevation of this match tempo. So, Stephen, now that you've heard kind of all of this, uh, you've seen that really we were more effective attacking last year. Uh, the metrics support that we were getting more counters, better on the counters, but somehow we actually weren't in total domination of the games. We weren't on the ball as much. Does this surprise you? Does it not surprise you? What, what are your thoughts when you, when you hear this? I think what surprised me was that we, I think what, from, what, from what you said, Ari, we had more, we had more passes on average per, uh, overall as opposed to last season, I think Correct. you said. Mm-hmm. And that almost surprised me because of how great we were at moving the ball up and down the field last season. And then I thought to myself, well, it's about effectiveness. It's about what you do with those passes. And it's clear to me that this season we we weren't as effective with our passes and what we did with it as opposed to just passing it back to, I don't know, every game I'd see Semedo pass it back to Jose Sarr, Jose Sarr pass it to Bar or Cisse. They'll pass it to Holibas and then they'll pass it back to Semedo again. And it's just like that little trying, that little square of them passing it back to each other for a couple of minutes. And not only that, it, I, you know what? If, if, so, if somebody came to me at the beginning of the season when we qualified and said, look, you're, if, if you, you're going to finish third place, like they're not going to tell me anything relating to stats, relating to how many wins, losses, whatever we get. I would say, OK, sure, we can probably get second. And I still, still and I said, I, I mean, you know, I, I predicted we finished second, so that's a bit awkward. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll take that. That's probably where we deserve to finish because a lot of people unsurprisingly, will just write us off immediately because they see, you know, Marseille and they're like, oh no, Marseille are a big club, they'll come third, they'll come at least third, you know, they've done well in Ligue 1, which is fair for them because they don't quite have the understanding of Bolingueros that we do. But just the performances this season were just not, it wasn't acceptable. It, it weirdly almost mirrored last season, actually, because we, we had to get a win against Red Star to go yep. come third. You know, up until then, we were like, how have we not got anything other than a draw against Spurs. Like, we were, we were great. We were, we were we, you know, we took the game to what were, would become the European champions, you know, the best team in the world. Like, top, we played against Spurs. We 
we we came back from two all or from two nil down in Birea and then should have got something in 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 London and somehow lost that game four two and and this season, oh man, like some of the performances, we had flashes of looking great and. We, when we got those chances, unlike last season, we didn't put them away. There were so many sitters that I just thought, how? How did you not put that away? You know, against City, there were two. There were, I think it was Valbuena and I can't remember who else. Probably El Arabia. Like, they just, they, they absolutely squandered so many good chances. And that's why we didn't score as many this season. We scored two, two in six games. That's an absolute joke. We scored eight last season in six games. I, I will say this, though. I, Two reasons why we qualified for the Europa League this season. One is because we were slightly more defensively solid, you know, and Villa dropping back at, when it was necessary was good. But it was also because Manchester City absolutely decimated Marseille in the last game. Like, if yep. they could so easily have just kind of sat back and, you know, they had United this weekend and they didn't win, um, <laughs> they drew. Um, but, you know, they could have so easily have just been like, now nah, we're just going to like play. If we get a goal, we get a goal. That, that's the reason we finished third. And I just think. We shouldn't rely on another team when it's in our hands to finish third place. If we can go out there and beat Porto, which I thought I thought we would, you know, I, I was so confident because we've done that in the final games, like against Red Star and against um, Milan in the Europa League a couple of seasons ago. And we just, it was such a downer to end the Champions League season on because we want to show people that this team is great and like we, and like show them that we can play football and, we, we just looked like a pushovers at times, sadly. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's truly just the worst way to go through and get third. Like, I was hoping for some heroics and, like, we win. It doesn't matter what City do. We're going through. It would have been so exciting. But, like, to play like crap and that's how we advance, it's just so disappointing. And we honestly just limped to it as well. The only result we got was the first game. We got it deep in the the hours of stoppage time, like Hassan coming in, you know, we, we won one nil, we scraped the victory and then it was just losses. Yep. I, I have one thing that I want to bring up that I've been thinking about now that time has passed. Like I was trying to imagine what those games would be like, especially the Porto game. If we had fans in the stadium, you know, do you guys know what I mean? Like, I feel like well, the Kariskaki I know would not allow like a performance like that, like the energy to drop so low. When you have like 33,000 people yelling and screaming and singing nonstop, I feel like you don't have that non-passion. And I don't know. I don't think anyone has really put their finger on like how this whole no fans situation is affecting football. But I am for sure that that Porto game goes different if we have fans. Like that's one game where I know like, the fans wouldn't have allowed that. I, I been to the stadium enough to know those players would have been whistled and booed at halftime, and like it would have picked up. I mean, logically speaking, we have a bigger advantage from our fans than other teams do. And Stephen, I know you watch a lot of English football, but let's be honest here: the the impact that the fans have for a team like Manchester City or like Tottenham. Uh, does not come close to the impact that fans have for, for us at Karaiskaki. Um, and Nambro said it perfectly. The energy would not have been allowed to get that far down. I think that's definitely a factor, but I mean, I'm not going to excuse the 
product on the field either because the product on the field also was worse. Um, and obviously, I think the fullbacks are the main issue, especially on the left side. You know, Omar didn't have his best year last year, to be fair. Uh, he is a different type of player, and so he affects the way that we play. But even though Jose Holebas has surpassed our expectations, especially in as a defender, you know, Chimikas is, is an incredible player. Uh, he was amazing for us, and it's really hard to replace his offensive impact, and it really limits the way that we can play with width, as we've seen at some points this season. Yeah, and, and this, this, this is what happens when you don't bring in the players you said you'd bring in. Look at look at Sanusi. Like look at him. He was brilliant. He was brilliant domestically. He was brilliant. Don't remind so, me. <laughs> yeah, br- amazing, amazing player. What a player Porto have, and and then it was Rice as well. And we just thought, you know, that was a sure sure signing, and it just didn't happen. And I, I you know, I'm so happy that Holibas came back. Like he he was a great seventh for us before he he left for Roma, I believe it was, and. And I'm happy that he was back. And yeah, the, the understanding was, like you've said before, is that he was meant to be a backup. He was meant to be like the new Torresides, you know, he was meant to like come in if, if necessary. And yeah, he shouldn't have been expected to play in those games. Although he did put in some great performances though. Like I can't take that away from him. But when, when you have the additions that we should have brought in, we, we play better. But then I think it's also down to what everyone's been suffering from. And it's the fact that no one had preseason. And I think it really showed with us because Pedro Martins was, he was a lot less willing to rotate as well. Even in league games, you know, yep. he, he was a lot less willing to rotate when, 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 he, when he could have. And, and it's a shame because some of those signings has, haven't worked out. Like Vinagre, who I, who I held in very high esteem when he came because he looked like a quality player. And I thought, you know, wow, he's 22 million euros rated player, you know. It's, whether it's been given the time or it's his mentality... It hasn't worked out, and and the same with Bruma as well. He ha- he's shown flashes of what he can do, but unfortunately, he I, I, I believe he did t- test positive for COVID, or and he was injured as well, or it was one of the two, and he just hasn't been given the time that he possibly should have had, and it's just a shame. And some of the some of the signings we've had have started slowly but worked their way in, but I think it, there's a lot of factors that have affected us this season, especially not having fans. Like that's a a big big loss for us. You're you're 100% right, Stephen. I mean, and going to the signings, I mean, we knew, it, you know, Martins had that that press conference where he said he was going to trust more experienced players because there was such a short break. Now, in the beginning, I was okay with that at the time because I understood. But then as the season developed, you know, I was regretting that decision because I sat there and I was like, this is kind of shooting us in the foot now because we put our faith, we put our trust in these older guys. And then they start, some of them, you know, start getting injured. We knew Valbuena was going to get a knock eventually. We were running him into the ground. It was bound to happen. The same with Rafinha. And understandably, Martins was going to trust those guys. But then our upside started to get capped a little bit because despite the fact that we were we had more crosses, right? The overlapping runs. Now, overlapping runs isn't a metric we get on Y Scout. We we can see it more easily with FB Ref. And you see it. We have less overlapping runs when Rafinha and Holebas play than we had on a per-game basis with Omar and with Simikas. That's a huge problem because that's something that helps us establish width. Now, where the production was coming from for crosses, guys like Valbuena, Mari Camara was going out and crossing. He hasn't done that. Even last year, he didn't do that. He was going out and making cross a lot of crosses this year. 
It is no coincidence that when Valbuena got hurt, that our crossing production and our width was drastically affected. Valbuena was a key piece, a moving piece that made all of that stuff happen. And it all starts with the movement in the midfield. This year, save for today and the games, and maybe a, a couple of games in the Super League, our movement, our mobility in the midfield has been pretty poor. We haven't had the same level of movement as we did last year. Remember how the midfield setup was last year? We we ran mainly the 4-3-3, right? Mari, Bujalakis, and at the time, Guillerme. Guillerme especially was moving all over the place, making himself open as uh, as an outlet for people to go to. Uh, Bujalakis was the guy sitting in front of the defense most of the time with Mari playing box to box. But there was a lot of movement in that midfield. Constantly outlets for people to go to. This year, it's not the same. We don't have that movement. Bukalakis is there, but Bukalakis isn't really playing the exact same role. He's getting more forward than he did last year. Mvila is the one that's taking that real holding midfielder role again and sitting, well, maybe not directly in front of the defense, more like in line with the defense. And that's taking away an option. And Madi has been pushed in the times he's playing in the 4-3-3, really far up, almost like a 10, less so box to box. And what does that do? When your midfielders are now all, o- all over the place instead of staying together in a cohesive unit and you have your midfielders going out wide to make crosses or your midfielders making overlapping runs, then you lose those pieces there to create those outlets. This is It's all a butterfly effect. So even though we were getting the production early on by other players usurping that role, it's negatively impacting the overall product because the core part of our team, the midfield, which has been our backbone, it's doing too much. It should be in a little bit more of a specified role. I'm glad you brought up the 4-3-3, Adi, because I don't think with the players that we have currently, we should be running that anymore. It's, no. uh, I, I, I mean, the league is a different story. If you want to try out, sure. But even in the league, we just didn't look confident when we played that yeah. system. I don't understand why he was playing Camara so high up the pitch at times. Just let him play in his box-to-box system. Let him play in his natural position if you're playing 4-3-3. But yeah, I think we, with the fact that two of like a few of our key components of that what made that formation great for us last season are now gone and what made it keep on ticking and like how we were progressing the ball I I think I think we should drop it for now unless we bring in the players that he wants and and that's how we can start playing that system but I think 4-2-3-1 just suits this team much more than 4-3-3 yeah I I agree with you too now here's the reason why I think he's doing that with Mahdi because this year it's not a statistic we brought up but this year our press is higher than it was last year. We're averaging in terms of overall PPDA around 12. Last year it was at 14-15. So the reason that Mati is sitting further up for me is for the press. That's the only reason I believe we're doing that. The press really, anytime we've had success this year, like the first game against Marseille, when we were threatening against Porto was when the press started to kick in. And a lot of that had to do with Mati sitting further up and having then less distance to cover on the press when the press was in. That's really the reason I think Mati was pushed further up. But then, of course... The consequence was, wasn't available as much in back. And that's when we had the issue with the midfield. So 
it's it's a huge worry for me. And I'm hoping that what we saw today against La Mia is kind of like a turn. You know, Martin seeing like, you know what, let's let's take it back to to last year. Let's take it back to basics. What I built up two years ago, you know, and then made last year. And then what evolved into a team that does possess better, right, on paper, but is back to not being quite as effective going through the final third. This was the same problem we had two years ago when Martins first came in. Remember, after after we finally figured out who our double pivot was going to be, at the time it was Guillerme and Camara. Uh, after Bukhalaki started the season, we didn't really have a winger except for Podence, and then we had a bunch of other randoms that sucked. Uh, you know, we had Pardo once in a while, who God knows what happened to him. Nahuel, who we brought up, him, got think, awful. Think, oh God, I forgot about Felipe Pardo. He, was always, <laughs> he had he he did all right his first season, if I recall. But after he that, he just yeah, he was just he was just a lump. He's just a bit of hey, a lump on the pitch. Yeah, he got fat. He got Dimitri Payet fat. Yeah, he you did. know that, and that's that's the thing. So we're we're kind of starting to get back to some of the problems we had two years ago, and Martins just needs to go back to basics. Listen. Four two three one, or if you know, if you ever, if he's ever going to do the four three three again, then Madi has to play box to box. But Fortunis is healthy now. The only reason we went back to the four three three in the first place was because Fortunis wasn't healthy. We needed a different option, a four three three or a four four two, which Martins has said he prefers to play anyway. But Fortunis is back. He's healthy, and it's not just him. We have a couple of guys that can play that ten role quite well. We know that Maxi Lavera can play the ten. Not that he's started off so well, but Tiago Silva, who's looked promising. Pepe can play the 10. So let's just roll with the system that's always done us well, the 4-2-3-1. Let's roll with the double pivot. Make Mvila stay further up. If he wants to stay in front of the defense like Bukalakis did last year, fine, but not in line with the defense because that's taking away an outlet for our players that are going up the wing, especially the overlapping right backs. How many times have we seen this season Holebas, when he's up the when he's going up the touchline, or even Rafinha, they're going up. They have literally no option in the middle of the field because you have Jan and Vila holding hands with Semedo. Bukalakis is somewhere, not in a in a present place to receive a ball. And then Marika Madara Fortunis are further up the pitch. How many times have we seen that? It's so frustrating because I barely remember seeing that last year. And on a related note to that, the lack of wingers has been a bit annoying at times this year as well for the same reason, like whether we use Fortunis or Madi as a winger and they just don't want to do it. I mean, it's the same complaint we've had with the Ethniki as well. You're basically just leaving Jose Holebas out to dry. In and what do you expect from him in that case? He's not a world-class left back. Like he can't just make something out of nothing by himself and get himself in that crossing position. And, you know, even on the right side, the same is often true for Rafinha. You know, he's just left out to dry and, We've said it before, crosses are so impactful to the way we play. We want to be able to have wingers out there that are in support. And that's why, like with Masuras, we really want to see him being more consistent and actually putting good crosses in dangerous positions. And that's why we're happy to see Broussai come up. But I still think we need more from the wingers and more consistency. I was going to just say about Broussai, you know, Lambro, Lambro called it, you know. I, I give full credit to Lambro for, for predicting that in the first place. And lo and behold, it's come true. I mean... No, for all we know, Lambro's not really in Athens. He's in Delphi. He's become the new oracle. <laughs> like, you know, it, next it thing now. we know, he's predicted Gostas Mitroglu, January 29th, 30th, 31st. Like, that's has. it. We see 
Mitroglouin in a new Olympia Russia, you know, who knows? Who knows what could happen now that uh, Lambroy is going to be predicting everything in the future. I I have my, what, what, is it, what do they say, like sources to, close to the pulse or something. I don't know what the exact saying is. The, the Rusai thing I knew because of what I read in Dutch media, actually. It was I ignored Greek media and I went to Dutch media. And when the Dutch are linking you to Ajax and saying you're a top player and you're playing really well, that means a lot because they really know their football. And when a player is good in the Netherlands, they're very technically gifted and you have to be smart as well. You have to play interplay. They like to pass the ball. It's stereotypical, but it, it is true. Most Dutch teams, even though they're mediocre defensively, play pretty decent football like if you watch a simple game they play decent so i i knew it mitroglu is just an obvious yeah i i think i think it makes too much sense like i i think it's just an easy link but i think the next one i need to get right is andrusos because i see so much talent there i i just need him to get the playing time as well and then everyone's going to be saying you were right again because i don't know what it is but that ball today and those talent, even at right back, which I don't love him playing at, I thought he played great. Like, I think, honestly, I would start him against Larissa, if anything, and maybe bring him on more because Rafinha, again, is old. I mean, I, I was even talking to Constantine from, uh, you know, Olympiagos EU about this on Twitter, you know. I mean, he was, he was saying it's a shame that, um, it's a shame that Andrutos is playing in that position, because that's while he can play that, it's not his natural position, and it's just a bit of a shame that he's not been given more time in a, in this Olympiagos squad, maybe in a more midfield role. But then there's a lot of there's a lot of players in midfield that he'd be way behind the pecking order in any of the positions he can place, and and even even when Draga comes back, he'd be third. Andrutos would be third choice right back, which is insane. Like he's such a talented player. And he's such a great Swiss Army knife for any team, and it, yeah, I, I I would love to see him play more. It's just it's just hard to see how much game time he'll get this season. Yeah, and he's got almost like an Arsenal perspective, Ainsley Maitland Niles syndrome, where he doesn't really have a position and he can play anywhere, and so he doesn't have a constant place in the team. One place I would not be opposed seeing him play is out on the wing. I don't know, just our wingers have been poor this year. Like I don't know, just give him a run out. Again, against Larissa at home, I think that's going to be a perfect game to rotate and just see some different options. Maybe play him at fullback for the full 90 or even on the wing for at least 60 minutes. I'll be honest with you. I liked him on that right back side. He actually overlapped more in the final third than Rafinha did in his limited time. And, that, and that's positive. That's what we need. And the younger guys are going to do that for you. I think it's worth it to, to give him a run. And, you know, kind of while we're talking about Rafinha and, you know, we'll, Rafinha, even Holebas or uh, Mvila, I'll throw him in there too. Uh, these are the three replacements for three major areas, three really important areas of the pitch for us. And we did a positional comparison, or I should say I did a positional comparison uh, of the guys, the replacements for the positions that were doing decent for us last year were identified as areas that we inadequately replaced to see where we were at. And I wanted your thoughts, uh, Steven, Lambro, Peter, on these things. So we'll start with Rafinha and Omar. Now, defensively, in terms of what they do off the ball, very similar. I mean, 
to the point where it was the in terms of the defensive dual efficiencies it was almost the same, maybe a 0.1% difference. So I didn't include those because all things held equal, Rafinha and Omar are pretty much the same defensively. So in terms of offensive link-up, Rafinha is averaging almost 60 passes a game. In in every single one of our games except for one, he's always been one of the top three players in overall link-up play. Uh, Themis Gesadis wrote an article about him how he was, is an engine of the offense going forward because so many passes, so many balls play through him. Uh, he has almost a 90% pass, overall pass accuracy. Um, Omar last year was averaging 43, just under 44 passes per game with an overall pass accuracy of 85.4. Omar was almost never in that final third. He was never as heavily involved in link-up play. Uh, in terms of crosses, Uh, This is something that's always been important to us because we know that our crosses are down this year. Or, well, maybe not down, but the fullbacks aren't doing as much as last year. Uh, Rafinha is actually crossing more than Omar did on a per-game basis. Rafinha in Champions League this year, almost four crosses per game. Pretty good. Omar was less than two crosses per game. And in terms of efficiency, again, about the same in terms of picking out the targets and actually getting the balls on heads. Uh, Through balls. Rafinha's averaging one through ball, almost two smart passes per game this year. Unfortunately, Omar is averaged about a quarter, like one-fourth of a through ball per game. So one through ball per four games you could think of. And uh, no smart passes at all last season. Just as an idea to give you kind of the offensive production that they had. Now, in terms of overlaps, obviously, Omar overlapped the wing more than Rafinha did. Over double. We expected that. Rafinha doesn't get that far forward. So who do you think was the better right back? Rafinha this year or Omar last year? I I personally would take Omar just because of the pace and also his leadership. He's been around the team. I feel like Rafinha is kind of like an arrogant kind of... I went over this last podcast, but shows the worst personality traits for this team, especially for the Portuguese-speaking players, like the yelling at the ref, the diving in, the laziness, blah, blah, blah. Omar was just always running, always fit, always ready to do the extra, ready to lead the team. He'd been around for so long, you know. He he was one of the team leaders, and I think that was definitely missing. So I would still take him. And also one thing I I would mention is, there's supposedly some interest from from Benfica for Rafinha. I don't know. We'll we'll see if there's anything to hear about that. But it's kind of strange for a 36 year old to have transfer interest. We'll we'll keep you guys up to date if we hear something about that. I mean, as as annoyed as you might be with Rafinha, then, bro, we can't let him go until we get a replacement. Uh, if we get a good replacement, I'm more than happy to let him leave. But I don't really know why Benfica would want him. I think Omar is probably the better player between the overlaps. And as you said, Lambro, the leadership, I think that was so valuable for Omar to be, uh, you know, the captain for our club and having been here for so long, set such a good example, both on and off the pitch and training. Uh, Even though we were frustrated with him at times, you know, he wasn't always amazing, especially we really wore him out. I think towards the end of the season, he didn't get a lot of rest even in the league. So for me, Omar is a better player, but, I, I do think Rafinha is maybe a little bit underappreciated. He's, he's, you know, he gets involved a lot, but I think he's just not the type of fullback that we necessarily need the way he plays. And then defensively, I maybe would like to see more from him. Steven, how about you? Listening to the offensive th- 
output that's here. The the defensive output's basically the same for Omar and uh, Rafinha. But based on the, the data that we gave you, what's your opinion for Rafinha versus Omar? With Rafinha, it, he shows flashes of why he was at the top level when he was, why he won the Champions League with Bayern, and why he's so highly regarded um, uh, um, from his former clubs. I was actually happy when we signed him, you know. It was a great coup. He's a great marquee signing. Um, and he's done He's done well. Like I think from a statistical sense, he's done well. His attitude at times when he's just shouting at people is a bit... Not something you really want to see unless it's justified. But I think I'm I'm feeling the same as um, Peter and Lambro. I just think that in terms of having a player that fits the system and having somebody that has been at the club for such a long period of time and is like you said was a leader. He was a like a, like Omar was a leader in that team. He was captain for that season, and I think I take. Omar over Rafinha just for the and also for the sake that we'd get a lot of like we'd get at least three or four more years out of him if um, Omar stays because Rafinha's in the twilight of his career yeah Rafinha is a one-year signing for sure pretty much Adi what if what do we see if we look at the left side do those same comparisons between Holebas and Jimikas so on the left side it's a little bit more clear-cut uh I know I I'm probably the outlier here uh, because I got frustrated with Omar last year. I know he was the leader, and especially now where it seems like we really need that leadership. Based on the offensive production we get out of Rafinha, I like Rafinha better than Omar last year because it wasn't the best Omar that we had, especially for the money that was being asked. But when it comes to the left side, the left side of the of the field is, it's not really a, a, a discussion. Uh, in terms of In terms of their offensive production, um, Holebas this year averaging about 34, just over 34 passes a game with a total pass accuracy of 78.5. Tsimikas was a little bit higher than that, both in the pass accuracy uh, as well as the overall number of passes. He was at 36.8. Crosses, Holebas in Champions League is averaging just under two and a half crosses per game with a cross accuracy of 29.4%. So a third of his crosses hit people's heads. Tsimikas not only crossed more, he was way more accurate. Uh, Tsimikas was almost four crosses a game, so uh, and half of his crosses, exactly half, went to people's heads. So overall, more accurate. Uh, through balls. Every two games, Holebas gets a through ball with 0% accuracy. So he attempts one, but he's never completed a through ball. Tsimikas... Uh, 0.71 through balls per game, so a little bit more. He, he looks to do that more with an 11% completion rate. He has more overall completed smart passes and attempted smart passes per 90 than Holebas does. Probably nothing that's going to surprise any of you. In terms of defensive statistics, Holebas and Tsimikas have a very similar defensive dual win rate. Tsimikas is higher for his performances in the Champions League. Now, some of you might say, oh, they both defend similar. No. For me, Tsimikas's defensive dual win rate, even though it's only a few percentage points higher, means a lot more to me because of the caliber players he was up against. Not to say that Manchester City, you know, is a bad team, but we played scrubs. In, in terms of the who they, especially in the second game of Manchester City. Tsimikas stopped Traore over two legs. Tsimikas stopped big name wingers from Bayern Munich, Tottenham. The players that Tsimikas went up against 
in my opinion, were higher caliber players overall. So this one isn't really as big of a, a difference, or I should say it's not as close of a conversation in terms of how similar they played. Zimikas here is, is a clear, better player, plus he overlaps more. And, and this isn't to, to throw shade at Holebas because Holebas is going beyond the call that was asked of him. But we're clearly missing the production and the defensive work rate from Zimikas. Yeah, not surprising there. Holebas... God bless him. He's really given it his all, and he's he's been put in almost a rough situation. Um, you know, if if there were fans in the stands and he was getting heckled at and everything, he probably would not be enjoying himself very much. He's like, I just wanted to come here to sort of retire and, you know, ride into the sunset. But he's done, honestly, pretty well. Hopefully, we bring someone in in January, and then, you know, we don't actually need to play him every game. But one more comparison I'm interested in, Adi, is in the midfield. It's obviously not a straight swap because they do very different mm -hmm. things for the team. But Guillerme out, Jan and Vila in. Obviously, you know, that's pretty much what we've seen in terms of changes in the midfield. Are there a few key numbers that sort of stand out when we look at, you know, what one did versus the yes. other? Yes, mainly, again, going back to the offensive side of the ball here, because we had mentioned, even when we did a deep dive on Jan and Vila before he joined the team, that defensively, off the ball, it was very similar. He has a similar uh, defensive dual win rate. Guillerme gets involved more in that. He used to press more. He has more pressures per game last year than Avila does this year in Champions League for us. And if I wasn't clear before, these are numbers all related to Champions League. So you guys can get an idea of why our Champions League performances are different. Uh, but Guillerme did a lot more offensively. Jan Vila has zero one-on-one -on -one dribble attempts for the entire Champions League campaign. That's not something he does. He doesn't. He only had one or two total offensive duels where people closed him down and he had to dribble out of it. He passes out of things, and that's fine. You don't have to be a player that takes them on. Guillerme, though, has that upside. Guillerme was, in terms of one-on-one -on -one dribble attempts, two and a half per game, and he won 73.4% of them. So we, we saw when Guillerme had the ball – he was great with it. You were confident that even if he got closed down, he could get out of it. In terms of his offensive dual win rate, it's also 70%. He was aggressive. He could get out of tricky situations. In terms of his offensive production, he has a similar number of long balls, similar number of passes. Mvila gets more touches than him. They even have a similar number of long balls. Mvila has more long balls than Guillerme does. But the key thing here is going to be the activity in the final third. I don't even probably have to tell you what the statistics are for you guys to guess who was more active in the final third of the field. It's obviously Guillerme. So that's really what we're missing here. Because again, in the, the defensive side of the ball, when they're trying to dispossess the opposing side, Guillerme and Avila are almost the same, literally. You know, in terms of the success rate and the volume, Guillerme edges slightly higher. He gets involved in more duels. He got involved in more stuff, not by a large margin. And when I say a large margin, it's Envila's averaging 4.3 defensive duels per game, and Guillerme was averaging 5.5. So one, one extra per game. It is more, not that much. Aerial duels, very similar. Loose ball duels, almost exactly the same. But the offensive piece of the ball, that's the difference because Guillerme is way more active in the final third than Jan Mbila is. Steven, on a, on a broader scale, uh, we talked about this in our last episode that came out on Friday. I personally think if we don't make any changes, 
we're pretty much out without a hope in Europa League. I don't see us with much of a chance to go through with this team as it's constructed. And that leads into my question for you. Do you agree with that? And then also, what is your wish list? Now, it doesn't need to be specific player names, but where do you want to bring in personnel over this winter break? What's your Christmas list? You know, obviously, I think we all want a left back, but is there anything else that you want to see in the team, whether it's a specific player name or just like a type of player that we need to bring in? To answer the first question, if we don't make any additions uh, in January, no, we will not go any further than the round of 32 because not only are all of those teams really strong, the teams that we would see as winnable are also like just as tough. Like I think people were throwing things around, myself included, like Club Brugge, like they were great. Like they were great in the group stage. They comfortably finished third. Dinamo Zagreb, like who we've beaten twice before in 15, 16 in the group stages, like they, they finished top of their Europa League group. You know, th these are teams that um, maybe one day we'd beat and maybe we have last season's team we'd beat, but yeah, we're, we're, I don't know. I can't see us beating a lot of those teams, to be honest. But I do have, in terms of positions, I would like a, a new left back, potentially a new right back as well. We'll have to see what happens with Drager, possibly a new winger. All right, so with that, Stephen, any final thoughts for this Champions League campaign? You know, Champions League is done for this year. We'll see what happens in Europe. What are your final thoughts? And then uh, with that as well, uh, we do, of course, want to thank you for coming on. As always, it's always great to catch up. And um, if you would like to alert the listeners to anything that you're working on, now is a great time to do that as well. Well, firstly, I just want to say thank you for having me on again. I've, it's always a pleasure to jump on with you guys. Um, I always love having a good laugh with you and like, talking about the current season and just random players that we've had over the years. You know, <laughs> we've, had too, we've had too many to, to count. Um, this season in the Champions League, like I said, was a, it was a big disappointment. It's not the worst we've had. That's reserved for, for me in my time of supporting Olympiagos. It's certainly 17-18 was by far the worst. Yes. Uh, we were terrible. Don't watch it unless you're any of the clubs that we played against in that group. Um, <laughs> But this was the most frustrating for me because we could so easily have, if we had, if, if, if things had gone our way, like with VAR, which is a completely different, you could do a podcast on how VAR has affected our season in Europe. It's just been so frustrating because we could, I, I still believe that this team could have finished second if we had won the right games at the right time. But third is, third is probably what we deserve ultimately because that Marseille team, they, overall, it, despite the fact they beat us away, they weren't a better team than us. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we improve. Um, and if we don't, then we're definitely getting knocked out in the round of 32. There's no way. If we go playing like that, we're going to get absolutely destroyed by a, a, a great team. And even a team on, that's supposedly on our level, they will just do what Porter did, score early. We have some close chances. They score late. They win 2-0. And yeah, I mean, if you want to well, read any of my blogs, they're on um, Hellas Football. You can find them at at Tell Us Footy on Twitter. We have a website. We have a podcast that we've recently, well, kind of recently started on a weekly basis. And we're doing one tomorrow. It should be out for, I, be I believe, either tomorrow morning or the British Standard Time. And also my Instagram is at Steve Conturu uh, because the last few names I tried were really stupid. 
Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that, that's me. But yeah, thank you so much, guys, for having me. I always have a laugh when I come on. And for tomorrow, I just want you to rile up Michael about the Addis Pauk game. <laughs> oh, I really need oh. him to just rant about these Pauks. Oh, Michael, Get, man. Like, I don't know if you watch club. the game. Just, like, feed him highlights. Feed him open TV clips. Oh, I just, I need some Pauk talk. No, not the <laughs> podcast, but just Pauk <laughs> talk on your podcast. <laughs> I'm looking. I'll, 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 I'll let him know. I mean, poor Michael. He, he loves Larissa, and they're just, they're so bad. They're, yeah. they're dreadful. They're terrible. Just, oh, yeah, my it's God. Just, it's just fun, like. Whenever, like, whenever, like, I've watched Olympia Rostil, right, and then he's on the chat, and he's just like, that, this, that's so bad, that, this, that, that, oh, penalty, oh, no, we missed, me. like, oh, it was, it's great, Michael's great. <laughs> As the unofficial MC, or the self-appointed MC for Rant Day, the first question for the first rant topic may or may not be Larissa relegation, just to get Michael, I want to make sure Michael's rolling in the, the right direction for that. But Steven, you reminded me, actually, because we did see a lot of people on Twitter say they were so disappointed. They've never been so disappointed in an Olympiacos team or so upset with a Champions League run. And I always have to remind people about two and three years ago. I will never forget that season. Besnik Hazi. Rubbish. Do you remember the first game against Sporting? Like that was one of the most That was it. That's why I wasn't that's why I that's why this that that season wasn't as frustrating than this one because the moment we lost three two and I think Pardo scored like two late goals to make the scoreline look better. I was like nah we're no way are we are we beating any of these teams or getting anything and we got the best result of that season was Barcelona when we drew nil nil that was the best result in all competitions that season it was so bad yep so we have we have had worse at least we have something that's workable here even the team two years ago like we have short memories that team two years ago also before Martins really fixed it was dreadful Podence wasn't polished Dynamo Kiev too much Oh, God, do not do not remind me of Dynamo Kiev. Also, yeah, Dynamo Kiev was worse than that Porto game, if I'm going to be honest with you. Like, that <laughs> yeah. game, especially away. Oh, my God, Hassan missed chance. Yes, Diaz scored an amazing goal, though. I remember that goal that he scored. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yes. Gil Diaz, yeah. Olympiacos legend. Absolutely. Like, well-known player at the club. He didn't he sign like, He's a coat. And I see people, like, retweet his goal every now and then. They're like, Yes. Gil Diaz didn't get a good shake at the club. I'm like, shut up. Like, Gil <laughs> Diaz sucked. Like, he scored one goal against Dynamo Kiev, and all you clowns are like, you know that Gil Diaz didn't get a good shake by uh, Martin. So, like, God, just give me a break. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I think that about wraps up all of our content here. Steven, as always, once again, thank you for coming on. And folks, if you do want more Greek football content, especially a broader look at the Greek Super League, the Hellas Football Podcast is for you. So give that a look. It's really great and provides a lot of different angles. It's not just Olympiacos fans. Thank you all very much for listening to our podcast, especially if you've made it this far. Be sure to follow us on our socials, Gate7INTL, and continue to interact with us. We'll be back in a couple days uh, on Wednesday morning with Greg Gavalas before the Ike game. So Darby energy, we're all very excited and we will see you very soon for that.